On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. These are the words of life. Well, I bet I'm not the only one here who was raised by a mother or a father who said, thank you notes, make the world go around. <laughs> Did someone ever encourage you to, make, to write a thank you note? Maybe you, like a friend of mine, had a grandmother who would fill up your stockings with small toys, school supplies and candy, and a box of eight thank you notes <laughs> on Christmas morning so that you would know that even though you're enjoying all of these toys today, by the end of business today, you need to have your thank you notes written, especially to those nice people at the church who are gonna know if they didn't get a thank you note. It's rare these days to get a handwritten note of any kind, so I love to do that, and I love to receive those. Frankly, when I've given somebody a gift, I'm just glad to get any kind of acknowledgement that it got there especially since we live in an era of not actually presenting a gift to someone. Most weddings we go to now have, the couple has a registry online, and so you buy the gift online, and you assume that somebody in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, or wherever the distribution center is, put it in the right box, and they're going to get that colander on time for the wedding. So if nothing else, a thank you note is a way of saying the transaction was successful. We've got our colander, our asparagus will be rinsed for the next 50 years in blissful love. It's not a bad idea to say thank you if you are married to someone or if you are the mother or father of someone or the grandparent of someone or if you work with someone Basically, if you're a human that is not a hermit, it's a good idea to say thank you a lot. I think the more thank yous you say, the fewer I'm sorry's you will have to say afterwards. I try to remember to say thank you as many times as I can when appropriate, and I know how much better I respond, like a little geranium who gets a ray of sunlight when I interact with someone who also says thank you a lot. So here we have 10 lepers who were healed by Jesus. Nine of them were so ecstatic with their healing that they ran forward towards the future. One of them turned around, did not actually write a thank you note, but got down on his knees and said, thank you, God, for being God and for enacting this miracle. Remember that leprosy was a horrible, horrible skin disease that was contagious. They didn't know how to manage it. All they knew what to do it is all they knew to do with you if you had leprosy was to send you off to a leper colony where you would live with other lepers 
where you would not see your spouse, your children, your best friend, the people you used to work with. You would have no means of income. You would have no community except the other lepers. So to suddenly encounter Jesus in this situation, even though he's a Jew and you're a Samaritan and you know they, don't, they didn't get along at all, you open up your heart and say, maybe he could heal us. And suddenly your day has changed. Your whole life has changed and suddenly you're well. You can go back to your job. You can go back to your marriage, to your family, to the home that you built because you're no longer contagious. Now, I don't think Jesus sat around getting upset when people didn't say thank you or when they didn't write out a handwritten thank you note. But I think Jesus appreciated this 10th leper, this 10th foreigner, who did get down and praise God. The 10 lepers ask for mercy. They don't deserve mercy necessarily. They have no rights to mercy. But Jesus is also under no obligation to give them mercy as well. He's under no obligation to heal them. In fact, he would be expected to pass by on the other side and not interact with them at all. There's no demand for thanks in what he said. He did not say, go show yourselves to the priest and make sure you say thank you. He said, go and show yourselves to the priest. So there's no demand for thanks, but a command to go somewhere and do something. The one who actually said thank you, therefore, is the one who technically didn't follow the instructions. That's the one who actually didn't quite do what Jesus said. He added something on. But for those nine who didn't say thank you, we understand that our God is a gracious God and that ingratitude doesn't cancel out grace. You don't have to say thank you. You still get to keep the grace. This question of why God likes to be praised and why Jesus appreciated when the man praised God was brought up yesterday in my car as I had the radio on listening to NPR and I was in the car running errands at the right time to hear Ira Glass's This American Life. And I had a driveway moment. Maybe you've had a driveway moment when you've listened to a story on the radio that you want to hear the end of even though your milk might get hot, or the other people in the car want to go inside. Ira Glass, as you know, has this radio show that's been going on for years and years where he gets really deep into someone's life and someone's life experience. He talked about recently being invited to go speak in Chautauqua, New York, at the original Chautauqua uh, lecture circuit where that was all born. He said, if you don't know what this is, it's sort of like what they did for TED Talks 150 years ago. If you know what a TED Talk was, that was sort of like Chautauqua, except out in the open air. So a volunteer had picked him up from the airport and was taking him to the place where he needed to be, and he found out that this volunteer was a retired Methodist minister. That's why I stayed in the car. <laughs> I wanted to hear what this interaction would be like. Ira Glass grew up Jewish in Baltimore, he now professes atheism, but it's interesting to me how many of his interactions and interviews have to do with people of faith and questions of faith. So he asked John Jackson, this retired Methodist minister, I've got a question about God. 
And John said, okay, shoot. And Ira Glass said, why is it that so often in scripture and in tradition, we are asked to give glory to God? Praise God for this, praise God for that, give glory to God. He talked about a few years after his mother had died, he went as his family would do on the anniversary of her death to the synagogue and said the mourner's prayer, the Kaddish. They would do this every year and he would almost do it by rote, now being an atheist thinking, this is just what we do as a family, going through the motions, those words forming in his mouth as easily as the Pledge of Allegiance maybe. But this time he sat there with the book of prayer open with the Hebrew side on one side and the English side on the other and he said, I've read through the English translation as I'd never done since I was a little kid and realized how much of that Kaddish that's supposed to make me feel better now that my mother has died is about glory to God, praise God, God is almighty. God will save us. God is the strongest. God is forever. So we asked John, why do we have to praise God? Is God so insecure that God demands that we say thank you all the time? We tell God how great God is all the time. But as Glass put it, John had such a lovely answer. He said, first off, I think lots of people make the mistake of picturing God as a giant human up in the sky, somebody we just call up as if we would call them up on the phone, something like that when we're praying. But the way I see it, I understand God to be all the values and principles that we see in scripture. The obligation to love each other, to be honest and decent in our dealings with each other, all of those things. And so when I'm praising God, Jackson said, he said that's what he's praising. I'm basically re-pledging myself to those principles which I love. And Ira Glass summed up and said, as I've talked to other clergy, Jewish clergy, Christian clergy, Muslim clergy, some of them say similar things. The Kaddish is supposed to comfort me after my mother's death by pointing me to this idea of God's presence in the world, that there is goodness in the world, that God is still alive and good things will still happen. There's always something to be grateful every day for, something to be grateful for every day. And we're starting to learn that gratitude actually makes you a healthier person, not only mentally, but also physically. Research from the Greater Good Science Center, did you know there was one, at the University of California, Berkeley in 2019 showed that participants who kept an online gratitude journal, so by doing it online, they could record the results for their study. For two weeks, reported better physical help, including fewer headaches, less stomach pain, clearer skin, and reduced congestion. <laughs> and Dr. Robert Emmons of UC Davis, in the same chain of universities, reported that gratitude can lower blood pressure, improve immune function, and facilitate more efficient sleep. Gratitude reduces lifetime risk for depression, anxiety, and substance abuse disorders, and is a key resiliency factor in the prevention of suicide. And as Fred Craddock says, it also helps us get away from the self-centeredness that is so pervasive to our human condition. To be saved is not only to be healed and forgiven, but to be delivered from the self-centeredness 
that inhibits our lives. Sometimes we switch offices here at the church, either because someone moves away or because we find there are different needs. I had been assigned a huge office here at the church, and I wasn't using it all that much because I'm not here that often. My job is to drive around and visit people so much of the time, and I started to feel guilty that I had such a big office that I wasn't using. And so I let everybody know, if somebody else wants this office, I'll swap. And I got lucky and got to share offices now with Caitlin Drake, who inspires me, and hopefully I inspire her as we do two very different jobs, but we often find how we're doing exactly the same thing here at the church, just with different labels. She has been here long enough that she finally took down the little welcome poster that my predecessor in this office space had put on our shared door. And now she has a quote from Rumi. Very old quote. It says, wrap gratitude around you like a cloak and it will fill every corner of your life. Wrap gratitude around you like a cloak and it will fill every corner of your life. You probably don't wear a cloak too often. You probably don't get to October and get the L.L. Bean catalog and say, I must get a new cloak <laughs> for the season. Maybe you put it on when you go to the opera with your top hat and your stick thingy that you take the opera. But we don't wear cloaks that much. But remember when Rumi lived, you wore your cloak as your coat, as your sunscreen, as your outer garment, and it was also your bed. So you had your cloak on you all the time. You either had it in your arm or you had it on your person or it was covering you. So wear gratitude like a blanket or a coat or your clothes and it will fill every corner of your life. What would it be like if you tried to write down three things every day that you're grateful for? Anybody who's battled depression has heard someone say, Stop right now and write down three things you're grateful for, even if all it is is, I woke up, I saw the sun, and I got through the day. If that's where you have to start, you start. And then watch and see how your gratitude develops and your attitude changes. Dr. Amy Oden talks about gratitude as pretty much one of the fruits of the Spirit. And she says, as we know, the fruits of the Spirit, you probably had this embroidered on something in your kitchen or your grandmother's kitchen. Fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I had to look at my notes. But she translates that as being free, being real, being rooted, being grateful, and being open-hearted for others. A very different writer from Amy Oden is Anne Lamott. And this is a family service, and we are on television, so I have changed some of her language. She's a very earthy writer, but it's funny how so many of us can relate to the experiences she's been through or the realizations that she's come up with. She started out kind of living hard. She's a recovering addict, but has been sober for many years and she was scooped up by a little church on the not-great side of Marin County in San Francisco, California. 
when she was down to her last dime, they loved her, they picked her up, and they embodied Jesus Christ for her. She has gone on to become a very successful writer. She's won a Guggenheim Fellowship, and uh, she is not at rock bottom anymore. Well, let me tell you what she had to say about her son, Sam, who at the time was seven years old. Sam is the only kid he knows of who goes to church, who is made to go to church two or three times a month. (laughs) He rarely wants to. No, that's not even true. He never wants to. What seven-year-old would rather be in church than outside playing with a friend? It does no help to remind him that once he's there, he enjoys himself, and he gets to spend the time drawing in the little room outside the sanctuary that he only actually has to sit still and listen during the children's sermon. It doesn't help that I always pack some snacks, some Legos, his art supplies, and any friend of his whom we can lure into our churchy web. It doesn't help that he genuinely cares for the people there. All that matters to him is that he alone, of all of his colleagues, is forced to spend Sunday morning in church. You would think, noting the bitterness and resignation, that he was being made to sit through a six-hour Latin mass. You might wonder why I make this exuberant boy come with me most weeks, and if you were to ask, this is what I would say. I make him because I can. I outweigh him by nearly 100 pounds. (laughs) But that's only part of it. The main reason is that most of the people I know who are doing well psychologically, who seem conscious, who do not drive me crazy with their endlessly unhappy dramas, the only people I know who feel safe, who have what I want, connection, gratitude, joy, are people in community. And this funky little church, it is where I was taken in when I had nothing to give, and it's become, in the truest, deepest sense, my home, my home base. I didn't mean to be a Christian. I was tired and vulnerable, and Jesus won. He took me to this little church across from the flea market in Marin's ghetto. That's where I was when I came to, and then I came to believe. Enter Sam. I got sober, and then I got pregnant. Don't ask me how that works, it's just the way it was. And as some of you may know, there were tiny little problems, like the father not really wanting to be a father. But I'd been going to this little church for a while by then, and when I announced during worship that I was pregnant, people cheered. All these old people raised in fundamentalist houses in the deep south cheered. It was so amazing. They almost immediately saw me as the incubator who was going to bring them a new baby to have and to hold. So they set about providing for us. They brought clothes. They brought furniture. They brought me soul food casseroles to keep in the freezer. They brought me assurance that he was going to be a part of this family. And they began slipping me money. Now, a number of the older women live pretty close to the bone financially on small social security checks but they would slip me a 10, a 20. One of the oldest women in the congregation, so beautiful in her crushed hats and hallelujahs, would slip me plastic baggies full of dimes, noosed with wire twists. I was usually filled with shame, but I would speak from my tortured throat and say, thank you. 
Eventually, Sam was born. I brought him to church, and I passed him around when he was five days old from one set of arms to the next. They very politely pretended to care how I was doing, but really, we're just killing time till they could hold that baby. Sometimes they'd call it our baby or my baby. Bring me my baby. I believe they came to see me as Sam's driver or his roadie or his Sherpa, the person who brought him and his gear back to them every Sunday. Mary Williams always sat and still sits in the very back by the door, and during the service, she praises God in a nonstop burble. She says, oh yes, uh uh-huh, my sweet Lord. Sam loves her, and she loves him back, and she still brings us baggies full of dimes. Every Sunday, I nudge Sam in her direction, and he walks to where she's sitting, and he hugs her. Then Sam leaves the sanctuary and returns to his drawings, his monsters, his dinosaurs, his birds. I watch Mary Williams pray sometimes. She clutches her hands together tightly and closes her eyes only most of the way so that she looks blind. And she's so unselfconscious that you get to see someone in a deeply interior pose. You get to see all that intimate resting. She looks as if she's holding the whole earth together or making the biggest wish in the world. Oh, yes, Lord. Mm-hmm. My sweet Lord. She doesn't know that I'm semi-famous now, that I'm pretty affluent, and I no longer really need people to slip me money. But what's so dazzling to me, what's so poignant, is that she doesn't bother with what I think she knows or doesn't know about my financial life. She just knows we need another bag of dimes. And that is why... I bring Sam to church. Amen.